Get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions, will dive into education issues, and will highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sadorf. Welcome back, Rural Scoop listeners. Today, we are continuing our collaboration with West Ed and the Region 15 Comprehensive Center to look at rural education from multiple perspectives based on the book, Cultivating Rural Education, a People-Focused Approach for States. One of the best parts of this series is the opportunity for me to co-host with Julie Duffield, who works with West Ed and supports the Region 15 Rural Community of Practice. Julie, can you introduce yourself? Yes, Melissa, it's a highlight of my week working with you. And so welcome, everyone. This is Julie Duffield from the Region 15 Comprehensive Center. Well, we're so glad to have you. And we are also very pleased and honored to have one of the authors of the book here with us. Karen Epley is an Associate Professor of Education at Penn State University and a former fifth grade teacher, which I love. Um, She regularly presents research on rurality in a variety of different publications. She edits the Journal of Research in Rural Education, and she prepares K-12 reading specialists for certification at Penn State, among many other things. Just like rural leaders, she wears many hats. So welcome, Karen, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, I'd like to start just by um, allowing our listeners to get a chance to meet you before we dive into your expertise and the content of the chapter. So can you talk a little bit more about your background and your rural experiences that have influenced your participation in this book? Sure. Well, as you said, the most important thing for you to know about me probably is that I'm a former fifth grade teacher. And I've lived in the same rural valley in central Pennsylvania uh, my whole life. Um, In northern Appalachia, my community is very much attached to the local university. Um, It's a unique source of uh, good paying jobs with a living wage. Um, But yet the two communities are really different. um, And there's not a lot of overlap um, in how people, you know, interact with, say, uh, university students and faculty versus the local people uh, that live in the valley. So it's been uh, interesting for me to have, you know, my two feet firmly planted in these um, two pretty different ways of life. So that's um, been been interesting for me and useful as a, you know, rural scholar on one hand, but also Um, as a person really dedicated to um, a particular rural valley. And then building off that, um, in your beginning of your chapter, Karen, on on building strong rural educators, this quote stood out to me at the intro when you said, any problem that commonly manifests is a problem which everyone ought to be concerned. It's a shared problem. So if you look at your different communities, can you elaborate a little bit more um, about that I I want to see rural teaching as uh, existing in systems. So there aren't any quick fixes. Teachers work in within local policies, state policies and national policies. Um, So you can't really separate, 
you know, a problem, say rural staffing in particular is not necessarily about rural staffing, but rather is more a question of rural school funding because the funding influences the faculty staff, which influences the extent to which schools can recruit folks with depressed salaries. So I want to just try to keep things um, systemic and and just make sure we're talking about what the problem actually is and not getting distracted. Problems are the same across places, right? But even within districts, filling an elementary position can be far less problematic than filling a secondary chemistry position. So I think there's some of that too, that you can't talk about any of these things as the only one thing because they're never just the one thing, right? Whether it's staffing or retention or whatever it is. Also, Karen, at the start of the chapter, you share a study by Kilpatrick and Frazier, how rural professionals like medical pr- uh, practitioners or teachers tend to have three factors in common that are related to teacher recruitment, retention, development. Can you expand about those, including the importance of recognizing the within rural category variation? Sure. Those three are uh, challenges associated with professional development, challenges of specialization, and cultural homogeneity of those communities. So like I said, that kind of crosses uh, whether you're looking at medicine or teaching or law, right? That we all um, share those kind of problems relative to the rural space. So for example, professional development um, is a challenge because many reasons, but one is that teachers with specific areas of specialization, such as STEM or world language, may be the only teacher in that content area. So it would be really hard for districts to do, say a district-wide world language professional development when there are only two teachers in that, you know, in that area teaching. So it, it um, really impacts the ways that professional development can come to the school in ways that are really meaningful for specialized um, folks, but also the cost of leaving the school to go to PD is an issue as well, because you know it costs more. It costs more for the providers to come and it costs more for the teachers to um, you know, receive that if they go out even, right? That rural teachers have to wear many hats as you already alluded to earlier, that a dual certification is highly sought after quality and teacher candidate. Um, but so for example, to use chemistry, a teacher dual certified in chemistry and biology who is able to offer also an introductory engineering class is a huge asset. And teachers who can get qualified to offer AP courses are also in critical demand. So we want teachers who are specialized. We need teachers who are specialized, but we can't just have them specialized in one area because there aren't enough kids to fill a chemistry teacher's day per se, right? They have to do other things. And that's really hard when already secondary chemistry teachers are not in a great supply. So the last one is having to do with a cultural homogeneity of some communities, small population size and relative isolation. We know that teachers and students live in overlapping networks in school and out of school. So because of the distance, most teachers live in the community where they teach. They attend the same churches, shop at the same stores, attend the same events. And that can be either a really positive 
aspect of teaching in a rural place, or that can be a limitation, right? So it can really be an asset or a liability depending on the individual. And that applies to the principalship as well. So Karen, just exploring, because you you work at um, a higher ed institution, um, you talk a little bit and you describe several successful and exemplary practice uh, around school university partnerships. Can you share a little bit about the partnerships and how they can effectively help um, develop a collaborative school culture and then for opportunities for what we just talked about, teacher development, principal support, et cetera? Sure. I should start by saying that university school and university, excuse me, and school nonprofit partnerships are far more common in urban places because rural geographic isolation distance make it much harder to do, right? Just because the the nature of a partnership implies that you are going to be visiting each other. And that's really hard to do over, you know, 180 miles, for example. With that, and also um, that model is growing within rural education, and they don't always explicitly focus on student achievement or teacher development. So for example, a school university partnership might focus on developing a collaborative school culture. They could focus on professional development because both of those issues affect teacher attrition and positive relationships between teachers and principals is another example. I write about in the chapter, there's an example um, from faculty at the University of North Florida in a rural county school system was founded on the idea of improving school culture to combat teacher attrition. So the primary emphasis here was on strength-based teacher and administrator professional development. They are always, or almost always, um, systematic approach, right? It's not just looking at a curriculum or it's not just looking at teacher skill. And the research practice partnership is another example. There, it's like a particular kind of partnership They focus on dismantling barriers through cooperation between stakeholders that take into account the specific rural context in which teachers are teaching and kids are learning. Sarah Zuckerman has work on this that you could check out. Um, But again, the, the idea being that they want to affect a whole school or district system, not just at the level of the teacher. Teachers are seen as teaching within school systems in particular contexts, rather than as isolated individuals who are more or less responsible for student achievement. And that can contrast pretty sharply with isolated professional development um, that, you know, kind of the one and done model that we know we have to move beyond that looks kind of for the quick fix. Well, and Karen, to build on that, and I appreciate that because you don't get change to pedagogy unless you have sustained professional development. And, and in light of that, you, you highlight some research on some successful approaches to that in-service teacher mentoring and learning approach. Can you share some of those ideas, some of those approaches that you've seen? Well, probably the most important thing to know is that new teachers from schools without high quality mentoring programs leave teaching at much higher rates than those who get that kind of support. They need support in their transition to a new position and the navigation of the community, the curriculum, the resources, but too often mentoring is improvised, 
done without pay, not formally recognized. So another issue here that relates to uh, PD and mentoring is the necessity of out of field teaching for curriculum delivery. So by out of field, I don't mean teachers teaching on emergency certification, but rather newly graduated teachers who may have graduated from a K-6 certification program, but they tested into, for example, say middle school math. And it's possible that this new middle school math teacher has had exactly one course in math methods in that K-6 certification. So under the law, they're highly qualified and they're certainly you know, dual, quali- dual certified. They could do the job, but they're going to need more support than a student who had a specific math ed program. So that just kind of underlines another place where rural schools may have needs that are different from urban or suburban, just because that population right, of applicants looks a little different. So, but then to your question, um, one example is the Alaska Statewide Mentor Project. This is a collaboration between the University of Alaska and the Alaska Department of Ed. The program prioritizes development of reflective teachers who understand the cultural backgrounds of their students as assets, which is really interesting to me. And the the mentors are exemplary retired teachers who mentor first and second year early career teachers. The mentors have ongoing professional development over two years, and the program focuses on formative assessment to guide mentoring activities and keep the focus on student learning. But this this model is a really good example how mentoring, mentoring skills and the partnership itself isn't left to chance, but rather should be carefully and systematically developed over time. And the emphasis here in the Alaska model is really interesting because it uses culturally responsive pedagogy mm-hmm. and it's developed by guest speakers and mentor coaching and place-based lessons. Um, and now they're just to keep going with Alaska because they're doing some really cool things, but they are, the program prioritizes face-to-face meetings to the greatest extent possible, but of course, being Alaska, uh, technology plays a role in shrinking that distance between the new teachers and their mentors. And I think since the pandemic that we're all going to get better at that. And, you know, we can all be thinking uh, more critically about how, you know, professional development needs to be collaborative, collaborative, integrated with school priorities and responsive to teachers' needs. And honestly, we know it just costs more. Right. Mm-hmm. It, like it costs more for providers to come to the school and it costs more for teachers to access it elsewhere. Right. So um, technology is going to become increasingly more um, important as a, a viable way of getting PD as we move forward. And, you know, Karen, just to highlight another point that you're making around that kind of formalized mentoring program, that's a great retention tool as well to make sure that those teachers stay in that environment. Yeah, right. So we talked a little bit about, you know, rural community characteristics such as um, geographic isolation directly impacting impacting teacher shortages and retention. And there's a very system um, way of looking at those issues. 
and also some unique challenges. For example, we talked a little bit about the urban teaching aspects, emphasizing a teacher prep being more emphasized than a reflection on supporting uh, perhaps rural teachers um, and perhaps how we can change policy and programs to bring attention to that balance. Right. Well, promising practices um, such as culturally responsive, grow your own, like I just described from Alaska, they're complicated still, right, by inequitable access to post-secondary education for students who may be interested in becoming a teacher. Erin uh, McHenry Sorber, has, um, who is a author of a chapter in this book, but she has some additional publications about this issue. But while rural community characteristics, such as geographic isolation, directly impact how teacher shortages and retention manifest in any one place, there's still some consensus about challenges across communities that require districts to kind of be, you know, in a constant sense of working as a triage, right? We know that there's a perceived lack of privacy in small rural communities. There's a demanding workload, salaries are lower, there's limited material resources, and there's lack of rural specific teacher prep programs. So from the research, as well as a partnership angle, multiple U.S. universities, many of which are not located in urban communities, advertise urban-specific teacher prep programs. And there is no end of academic books and journals about preparing teachers for urban classrooms. Rural teacher prep has not yet received that same kind of attention, either in teacher prep or resources for practicing teachers. So as, as compared to the prevalence of programs that market an urban emphasis, for example, few universities really are focusing explicitly on preparing teachers for service in rural communities. But we know that just like urban-specific programs, teacher ed that is responsible to rural context is critical for rural teachers. It's obvious that our developing teachers need content knowledge and they need certifications but they also need a well-developed knowledge base and appropriate field experiences to be, paired, be prepared for their work in rural schools. I'm just thinking of the multi-age group teaching often that happens too in a rural setting. Right. That, you know, that's something that would not be, I know I can speak for my own teacher prep program. There's not a lot of emphasis on that, if at all, right? But if you were in a teacher prep program, say, for example, at Montana State, um, you probably would have that because they are more explicitly directing their graduates uh, to rural schools. That's a great example. All teachers need to think about place because learning and teaching always happens in a place. Um, but I would argue that it's particularly important uh, for rural teachers. So switching from teachers to now leaders, if we could shift the focus a little bit, can you talk a little bit more about the research that highlights the recruitment of school leaders uh, that suggests that similar factors impact that, that the rural school principal community where there's scrutiny, there's a high level of um, uh, interest in, in that person in the community, there's salaries are not where they would be in other areas like urban or suburban schools, there's fewer resources, uh, potentially a sense of isolation. Can you talk a little bit more about what the research is saying about that principal pipeline for rural communities? Yeah, you hit a lot of um, exactly what the research is saying, right? If, if you think about rural teaching as systemic, where preparation, recruitment, and retention 
are connected to a multitude of factors that are connected to rural places, it makes sense that school leadership positions would be affected by the same factors. So as you mentioned, um, research specific to the rural school principals suggests that the factors such as community scrutiny, low salaries, sense of isolation, fewer resources, et cetera. But meanwhile, rural school leaders are expected to meet the same accountability standards as larger districts with full staffs complete with full-time grant writers and semi-administrative specific leadership roles such as diversity coordinators, math coordinators, and literacy coaches, right? But our rural school leaders are expected to do all of this with a smaller tax base and fewer personnel. So I think while rural teachers wear many hats, I believe this is really amplified for the rural school principal and along with professional isolation and extremely high visibility in the community. Karen, is there any research around mentoring for school leaders? I think Catherine Budge is writing about that and maybe Danielle Hall. I know that there is, um, Anne was telling me about a network in Northern California that's just specifically for rural principals. So it's networking and building those principles up in a network. And so she was talking about the Northern Cal Leaders Network as one of those strategies. But just to share, there's um, Sam Jordan up in Alaska is also doing the same kind of formalized mentoring with principals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same setup. And when you were talking about the teacher preparation mm-hmm. and mentoring, it's the exact same framework that he's using. And I'm attending it because then I invited him to mine. Uh, we have a rural leaders network in the REL 15 area with, with those uh, states as well as um, as with Alaska. So it's just, it's one of those things that it is impacting the principal pipeline right now. Leaders are leaving they, and, and teachers don't see it as a viable option. They don't want to move up <laughs> because they, they, they see how much um, stress it is. <laughs> yeah. Just like you said, it, it, there's, there's little support, you know, you, you get to do everything and maybe you drive the bus too. But. And especially now with like the battles over masking, like I, I'm teaching a course right now and I have a superintendent in, uh, in that course. And he just, the guy's just like sweating bullets, like all the time. There is never a moment <clears throat> phone is constantly blowing up. Well, it's it's definitely, like you said, it's an interesting time. And that's, by the way, a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Yeah, no, I, I was really excited in your chapter. You know, you, you sort of hit on non-traditional and innovating approaches to share about, you know, grow your own programs, alternative um, routes to licensure and teacher residency programs. And we have been covering some of these in our rural community of practice and conversations. So, if you would like to share a little bit more about out there innovative approaches that their research is showing. Well, sure. Because when you think about grow your own, you have to think about Alaska immediately. I learned recently 22% of teachers in Alaska leave after one year and most of them are prepared out of state. And again, there is a percentage of those who do not make it to Christmas break or they come back and they don't come back after Christmas break, leaving schools without teachers on January 2nd. So it's very, very dire in these rural Alaskan communities. Um, Children in the most remote schools in Alaska experience yearly turnover rates of 36%. And when you think about that high rate of turnover, you can imagine the outsize effect of that in the smallest 
most rural schools that only have a handful of teachers to start with. One promising practice happening in Alaska is the Future Educators of Alaska program. It's a statewide initiative funded by the U.S. Department of Ed to encourage Alaska Native middle and high school students to become teachers. The program focuses on developing and nurturing interest among students to pursue teaching in Alaska. The program is unique for its culture-based club activities, specifically from the seven major cultural regions of Alaska, and also involves parents and community elders. There's a K-12 leadership curriculum that introduces students to teaching and leading early. There are opportunities for tutoring and job shadowing, as well as introduction to indigenous-based curriculum and community service. So as dire as the situation is in Alaska, um, I keep on hearing myself over and over again, this interview saying Alaska, Alaska, right? They also are really uh, doing some of the most innovative and exciting work to combat that problem. But I will say, if you don't mind me continuing for a minute, that I'm far less enthusiastic about alternative certification programs. So just for example, in a 2020 study of rural school hiring, 52 principals were given a perfect world scenario within which to consider their hiring preferences. The principals wanted to hire candidates with four-year and master's degrees from traditional college and university prep programs, as opposed to any alternative route, such as troops to teachers or Teach for America. But here's what's most interesting about that to me. In this scenario, even when traditionally qualified applicants were not available, rural principals reported they would still prioritize applicants who already had experience within the district and displayed an appropriate disposition and other intangibles over those alternative certified candidates. So when we're talking about alternative certification, Teach for America is typically what comes to mind. The candidates complete a five-week-long summer training program, and then they enter the schools as teachers of records. As you might expect, they experience high levels of disillusionment and stress. They quit in high numbers either before their two-year contract expires or immediately after. Only 15% continue to teach in the same school to which they were originally assigned, and only 24% are teaching anywhere after six years. So to me, the question, you know, what, what does it mean that TFA works, right? The question is works to do what, right? We know that there's some evidence that TFA can produce some marginal gains on standardized tests, but that TFA does not work as a viable means of addressing teacher retention in high poverty rural classrooms where the, this consistency is most needed, right? I, I think what's been pretty clear across the research is that teachers who work for children are teachers with robust holistic preparation. They didn't enter teaching as a stopover to law or politics, and they didn't go into teaching to save rural kids, which is a lot that's uh, built into the kind of TFA mission, right? That teaching is kind of like, um, I don't know, like community service almost, right? Like you're going in and you're trying to save kids essentially. Right. So in general, the research on TFA suggests that it's highly problematic as a source of rural teachers. And I would advise any school leader 
to consider teacher residency programs instead of TFA. Individuals typically that are already working in the school but are yet not certified, teacher residency programs work kind of in a third space between alternate route licensure programs and traditional four-year degrees. So they also want to recruit for hard-to-fill positions in high-need schools, but the preparation in the teacher residency program is much more robust. First, they all have a four-year degree to start with. They complete a one-year mentorship experienced in an exemplary teacher's classroom, also within the context of a university school partnership. And they're funded with state grants and a combination of tuition, forgiveness, and housing stipends. I'll come back to the funding in just a minute. But also, while they take university courses and observing, they're transitioning from mostly an observational role, just like in a traditional student teaching, right? And they pick up more responsibility for instruction over time. But the courses are really unique that they're taught by university faculty on site and also at times co-taught by district teachers. Mm -hmm. And every course is tightly linked to that specific cool school context. They're not, you know, generalized teacher prep. It's very specific to that, uh, that context where that teacher will be teaching. And at the end, the teachers earn a teaching credential and a master's degree and also continue mentoring for at least three to five years. So, but it costs a lot of money, right? So (laughs) uh, it costs money. States have funded this through the TEACH grant, district funds allocated from Title II from ESEA, district funds, district federal funds such as quality teacher program grants, resident stipends, AmeriCorps, private support, federal state scholarships to offset tuition costs. The the rates of um, of keeping people on are very, very good. They're at 85% in the same district after three years, 75% after five years. So the funding is really tricky, right? And no other program can claim these kind of retention rates. Like the Um, return on investment here. Right, right. But the model, like the money just has to be there, right? That's, That's the major drawback of the teacher residency. They work, but they're extremely expensive. So one of the things that we do in our rural community of practice for the Region 15 is we bring LEAs and SEAs together to talk about rural education. And so um, you talk about that in your chapter in the book. Can you share some of your uh, favorite examples of the role that the State Department can play in terms of what you're talking about with uh, strong educators? Well, that connects exactly to what I was just talking about with the partnerships, the teacher residency programs, right? Yes. We know they work. There is a deep and robust research base on these programs, 85% retention, right? It's incredible, but they can't work without funding. So I would want states to prioritize those programs for the preparation of rural teachers. I think that's really um, the best place to be putting our resources right now. What are the other uh, action principles that you addressed in your chapter for states? Well, I would want states to prioritize dual certification teacher prep programs. That connects back to what I was saying earlier about out-of-field teaching. I am not that excited about um, K-6 teacher ed 
graduate testing into middle school math, right? I Obviously, I think that can work with a lot of support, but better if that same student is dual certified in middle school math and also K-6. So I would like to see that happen. And of course, we need to keep prioritizing STEM and special education certification, right? What kind of incentives could the state put forward to entice students to get those dual certifications, consider STEM teaching, consider special ed? I'm really interested in that. I would love to see states think about long-term systematic mentoring, like what's happening in Alaska. I think that's a vital priority. And also something that's probably simpler, perhaps, is to enable better cross-state reciprocity of certifications. So I'm in a state where uh, Pennsylvania has really excellent, excellent reciprocity with other states. If a teacher is certified in Pennsylvania, they can go to many, many other states easily but that is not always the case. Um, And I think that is a way that I see um, that we could increase the number of teachers in the pipeline by making those certifications uh, more durable across state lines. I think we need to continue to think about um, rural school funding. I'm really talking about teacher compensation, but as I argued earlier, rural teacher compensation is not really about rural teacher compensation, it's about rural school funding. Right. So I think we need to continually, you know, push back on this idea um, that schools are funded by local tax bases. I think that's really highly problematic. And also I'm continue to be really uh, motivated and interested in university school partnerships and teacher residencies. So that's a short list of things I would like the states (laughs) to take up. Thank you, Karen. And just as we come to the end of our discussion, and we really appreciate you sharing with us today, um, what is something you'd like to add about your upcoming research? Well, I've recently proposed a grant with some colleagues at Penn State in which we plan to collect some data about the role of cyber charters on rural schools in Pennsylvania. The charter issue is a big one in the state of Pennsylvania right now. And there's some pretty clear evidence about the negative financial effects of charters on rural budgets. And since COVID, charter enrollments have simply skyrocketed. So we're really interested in how schools are absorbing the extra costs. And most importantly for me, why rural parents are opting to enroll their students in cyber charters, particularly um, as it connects to COVID. Well, I will keep, I'm very interested to read uh, once you get the grant. I'm really interested and we'll invite you back to tell us and share about it. Yeah, that would be great. I would love that. Karen, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. You can check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Sadorf so you never miss a new release. See you next time for more great discussions about rural education.
proud member of the Podnuga Network.